I always say that every single objection hides a requirement, right? So if somebody objects to it, it's normally because there's a hidden requirement that has not been discovered yet that uh, it's important digging into it and understanding exactly the reasoning, as you said. Hello and welcome to DevOps Sauna podcast. The DevOps conference is coming again on March 8th and 9th. And of course, you are invited to join our event. To build the excitement to the DevOps event of the year, we have invited exciting people to join our podcast and share a bit of backstory to the themes we will be covering in the event. And how could we talk about DevOps without talking about cloud? This is why we invited Mark Kluwe from HashiCorp. Mark is joined by Andy Allred, lead DevOps consultant at Efficode, and Eugen Kaparulin, senior consultant at Efficode. Our two topics are cloud waste and zero trust. Let's tune in. Thank you very much, Mark, for joining. Thanks, Andy and Eugen, for joining this podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Happy to be here. My pleasure. So this is an interesting conversation. We have two topics, but I am uh, expecting us to end up in intertwining them one way or another towards the end, and it remains to be seen what that is. But we are talking about cloud waste and zero trust. Now, now before I ask for the first question, let me just uh, recap the definition of cloud waste. And I'm verbatim reading this from HashiCorp. Research shows that anywhere between 20 to 35% of cloud costs are completely wasted. That's a minimum of 5 million wasted every day on idle and over-provisioned resources. As organizations take advantage of the benefits of the cloud, that waste will only be increasing. And it's really interesting that when we talk about the benefits of cloud, there is this is something that often goes unnoticed. So let me ask you, Mark, what's the reason companies are wasting around 40% of their cloud budget in unused resources? So for me, there's several reasons. The first one of them would be mainly that uh, we, as, as companies evolve, as companies get into cloud, they come from a model where they had, let's say, one, two, three different flavors of servers, because that was how a lot of companies operated, and they try to transpose literally that model into the cloud. The problem with that is that uh, then uh, we oversize the instances, right? We oversize the computing that we need. And that's the usual because, first of all, uh, you don't fully trust the cloud yet as uh, it's a virtual instance. It doesn't work exactly as anything else that you used. And second of all, you try to oversize always just to make sure. The problem is that people oversize, but then they don't go back to size it right. It's just working, right? So why touch it? The second part of that for me uh, would be also the reliability of the instances themselves. So uh, there's uh, also some connection between the amount of bandwidth and the amount of memory that you have versus the size of the instance. So sometimes that's a limiter in the sense that you need that exact memory size for your uh, application, but you are oversizing the CPU or you're oversizing the network. And in that sense, you are wasting that resource in a way because there's better ways to manage that. Uh, And that could be either breaking down that application into more micro applications so that can be finding the right instance because there's generic instance but there's also cpu extra instances or memory extra instances right so those for me i would say the main factors what about you elgin when you when you think about this and think about the ways you have seen this in through your own lens 
any thoughts around this? Yeah, um, I guess the term cloud waste uh, is a little bit wrong in some sense because for the cloud provider, it is not a waste at all because it gives them a little, a huge amount of money for um, resources being idle or unused. It is a waste, of course, a waste of money because you have resources around which are not utilized enough. As Mark said, um, the correct scaling for the applications is a, a, a valid factor. But often, especially in the long run, the applications are not only scaled correctly, but also not really used correctly. Say we are going for a peak load or a peak preparation like a Black Friday or something, there uh, usually the resources are overscaled or overprovisioned just to make sure they will, uh, you know, uh, handle the, the, the unexpected load. But it is a uh, bad uh, calculation since uh, you should scale your applications correctly or specify the auto-scaling capabilities rather than over-provision. Uh, Another thing is um, the developers or the architects even, even if they are experienced, uh, may not see a whole big, big whole picture. Uh, all the time. So we are on the cloud, we are working in the cloud, we, we should everywhere, everyone, QA developers uh, and testers, uh, architects should be aware that we are in the cloud and every resource costs, even an idle one. So there is often a missing red line uh, across the teams about that uh, the, the cloud, the, the computing resources are like uh, hired on a hired base, so they are not running in our basement and cost nothing. That would be my five cents about this, about the definition and um, and and the way how it comes to to that. I'm also curious, or would be curious to know, how much idle time is in kind of on-prem data centers. There's so many servers in in on-prem data centers that are just idling all the time. Is it really more? or less than what's happening in the cloud, where in the cloud you see the bill every single month instead of every single five, seven, ten years. So is it different? If it is or not, doesn't change the fact that we should do something about it. But I was just thinking as you, you were speaking earlier that is this a new problem or just a problem that's highlighted more? I guess it's an old problem since I um, saw organizations turning off test environments for a weekend, not only for on-prem hard hardware, but also for cloud. And then people were set extra time, working extra times on Fridays to shut down the whole test environments in the cloud. And then uh, getting in earlier in the morning uh, on Monday to revive all those test environments. So that sometimes helps but it sometimes resulted into a overkill because more people were busy on reviving the, the the resources rather than saving the money over the weekend on the long run but it i think it's an eternal problem it's just it's just more painful in a public cloud because the resources uh, reflect a real money yeah i would also add to that that the um one of the things is that it's for me it's a slightly different way of the same problem in the sense that when you are getting service in a data center, you normally condition or, or buy the service that will support the maximum amount of traffic that you will have at any point. And that can be at any point of the year, where in cloud, you're encouraged against doing that. 
in the sense that you you need to size for the right moment for the right volume, right? And that's what auto scanning in a way is all about, where you don't have the privilege of throwing more hardware every single minute or less hardware as, as traffic comes in. So it sounds to me like the perfect recipe for cloud ways is to be very, very quick going to cloud and very, very slow doing anything after that. If you are on the cloud, then you should start reducing it. But maybe reducing is dependent on what kind of waste you have. So maybe we first relate about what are the different phases of cloud waste and then how to go about reducing them. What's your take on that, Mark? So for me, it's, um, as we know, there's many different studies from Gartner and Accenture and other companies uh, that they try to define exactly this journey of cloud waste. And the one that is always very apparent is whenever you're migrating from a data center to cloud, most of the companies, I would say around 90% of them do what is called the lift and shift, right? They don't understand yet how cloud technologies work. They don't understand yet what is the best way to use them. So they just literally copy what they have over to the cloud. And that results in a lot of over-provisioning as well, because they copy the exact environment with exact sizing. And we already established that uh, the way data centers are built are built for the maximum amount of traffic during the year, because you cannot change your hardware from one week to the next. It's, it's very costly. So in that sense, you are creating the cloud as well for the maximum amount of traffic that you will have throughout the year instead of throughout the day. So that generates a lot of, uh, of waste wasted resources. And then, of course, you get all the uh, instances that are running idle, because if everybody is spinning up cloud instances and spinning up cloud resources, sometimes they forget to turn it off, because it's something new. They, uh, Most of the time, as Eugen said, you go, don't go back and turn the service on again, because there will be all kinds of trouble. And I've suffered personally from servers that you turn them off for a day and you turn them back on and you have disk issues because the disk were so used to being hot that as soon as they went cold, they they broke, right? So you have all kinds of issues in that sense. And so that's also something that people are normally not used to. And all of these then, it gets aggravated by not having someone in charge of cloud control. So not having someone that controls all the expenditure, this new figure, let's say called the FinOps manager, right? The financial operations, just to make sure that we're keeping things on track. And some, I would say some companies learned that the hard way. So I was involved in a company run four years ago uh, in which they didn't have a FinOps ma- manager. They started migrating to the cloud. They had a, a certain budget for the whole year and they used that budget up in the first three months. So as soon as they saw that, they went into panic and they immediately appointed someone that was already warning them about this as the FinOps manager interim until the situation was under control again. Yeah, besides uh, lift and shift problems, the the, the uh, budget will even grow after that, uh, especially when the uh, lift and shift uh, setup was not scaled correctly and the new cloud environment needs to scale out on demand. Then the scaling rules are usually set up either too high or too low and need to adoption, but that means uh, an additional dollars in the budget, which are used out. And um, often you need to migrate this setup into a newer one, like uh, like a microservices orchestration, where you need, again, to measure and scale and, and everything. So there will be always phases that you have some 
budget which will be exploding or tend to explode. That's why every cloud provider basically uh, recommends to divide projects as 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 uh, small as possible. Like we like the idea of microservices, also the cloud projects, like development project, production project, pre-broad test, and so on. You need to separate them so you have an easier overview over the billing over the used out resources that's something i would add here i was involved with a project some years back and it was the typical you know lift and shift to the cloud and we're going to sort this out later and you know short story or long story short later never came <laughs> so we just kind of lifted and shifted and then just ran and ran and ran. And the CFO was yelling all the, every single month that our AWS bill is ridiculous. What are we going to do? But he was tracking only the total amount. Nobody was actually going through and checking that what's contributing to that total amount. So everybody was just focused on, yeah, we need to do this. We need to do that. We'll take care of costs later, but later never comes. Yeah, it, it can go also backwards, uh, especially if you if somebody starts reducing the costs but doesn't have a much sense of the architecture or of cloud provider itself. They start running around and saying, oh, there is a big database instance. Uh, we need to replace SSD disks again, physical disks because they are cheaper. Or we need to change CPU types. But uh, on some platforms it uh, uh, affects also the network throughput depending on on the cpu core count and so on and so it could be a scissor and around and another another way so basically you need to know how to reduce costs not looking on the on the big numbers and just turning off uh, equipment Exactly. The easiest way to save costs is turn everything off. Like we have all those idle servers in this other data center. Let's just turn them off. Oh, you mean disaster recovery? Yeah, never tried out. <laughs> I would say for me, and you mentioned disaster recovery, right? It's one of those things that everybody likes to have, but nobody wants to check. Yeah. On the positive note, I remember two two examples. One was a company who was basically doing a transformation into being a SaaS company. And, and they had like a very simple emailer, like simple as, okay, here's a service and that service is emailing emails around to the customer. And simply by taking that and turning it into a serverless function, it like collapses your service costs for that particular service. And so collapsing is probably the right change or, or magnitude of change here. The other example was even more drastic, which was that if you adopt the right way of using serverless functions, then if the lifetime of an individual function is shorter than a certain amount of seconds, then in certain conditions, your cloud provider doesn't charge you at all. So, so especially for startups and people who are basically starting out and building up, then it can be really, really advantageous for them to look at their architecture and say, if we do it this way, then potentially our cost is zero. And of course, it doesn't compute on a long run, but on a short run, it can be a very, very effective strategy, for, especially for startups. Yeah, if you tailor it right, right it, it would be possible, sure. But it, it will be always some something like a combination of everything. 
Like you will have a central set of your microservices run in some Kubernetes uh, cluster, probably. But you will have some databases running on on, on VMs or in in SaaS or what whatnot. But but surely a lot of little little utilities or um, hooks or or whatever they can be realized via serverless functions quite quite easily and 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 cost efficiently. But there will never be a crystal clear one one single service in in, in a uh, cloud provider realizing all your infrastructure. That's why they basically invent all of these new functions. So you can com- combine them cor- uh, greatly together, being cost efficient, being computing ex- uh, efficient as well. Just need to make it right. And the question is, who uh, defines what is right? The cloud provider, the, your architects uh, from the next door, uh, or your, your security advisor in, in, in the company? So it, it really depends what is right, what is right and what is cost efficient. And that's also d- d- define what is waste and what is not waste in that sense because sometimes uh, an additional cost is uh, makes sense yeah definitely and i would say that would be the difference for me between cloud waste and overhead right because for example if you do platform as a service or if you do a serverless there's an overhead always uh, there's an overhead in cost or there's an overhead in maintenance or sometimes there's an overhead in the architecture itself but that uh, you are buying something with that overhead right you are buying back a peace of mind, or you are reducing your operational uh, footprint in that sense. So you are recovering part of that cost back, where with cloud waste, I would say it's 100% wasted uh, in that sense, right? And that's why it's it's called cloud waste. There's there's no recovering back. There's no counter, uh, there's no counter argument. There's no counterbalance in that sense. So, and I think, again, you had a fair question there, like who defines how to start reducing it and which way to start it? But are there some common methods that you could apply to reducing cloud waste? I guess so. Um, I don't know if they are commonly defined in some some open library, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, common sense uh, explains that, uh, as I said, when an architecture is placed in the cloud, then everybody touching it, even as a end user, need to understand that it runs in a public cloud, generating costs, generating possible cloud waste as such. Everyone needs to be educated about the architecture and uh, a communication between teams needs to be in place saying that, look, we need to avoid cloud waste, but we need to be efficient. So that's a common sense approach, I would say. Yeah, I would say for me, one of the most efficient ones that I've seen work is having a common framework of approach, right? So things like, having a common deployment framework, having a common deployment pipeline where you have, where you can implement those controls and uh, phenoms controls, security controls. So in this sense, you are reducing, in a way you're reducing the amount of uh, outcomes that you can create out of your platform. But the advantage is that you have full control of those outcomes and whatever happens with them. Then you can implement things as as policy as code, or even just um, as I did in some companies, you don't give them the choice. You size things up for them. You get the resources for them. So you add a layer of abstraction in that sense uh, uh, for the platform. And then the developers only care about, here's my code, push my code, deploy it. And I don't know what happens with it, but it just works, right? So it's there's a lot, of course, of, of grades of gray between all those 
uh, different outcomes. But the important for me is have clear control and governance and have, in that sense, a point where you keep that control, uh, be it through a pipeline or be it through the deployment itself. It's Lauri again. Many people wonder how to combine DevOps and cloud. While DevOps practices deliver software faster, with higher quality, and people gain the ability to spend more of their time working on new features, successful cloud adoption brings benefits in regards to scalability, availability, and cost-effectiveness. It also makes the adoption of new technologies and thus innovation and experimentation much easier. To help our customers in this journey, we wrote a DevOps and Cloud guide. In this guide, we'll walk you through how DevOps and Cloud support each other, the cultural shift needed, the technical practices, and the benefits to be gained from maximizing cloud usage with DevOps. You can find the link to the guide in the show notes. Now, let's get back to our show. Before we started the podcast, we had a chat with Andy. So we came online a little earlier and we were discussing about this idea that in some cases it's the technology that steers your culture and uh, sometimes it's the culture that steers the technology. What are your experiences in that like culture created on the basis of technology advancement, but also technology selected and uh, adapted to serve the right culture? There's... This concept that is called confirmation bias, right? And I think it, it, this applies very, very well to this example in the sense that normally uh, I think it's a lot more important uh, to define requirements first and then find the tool that matches. Because if you select the tool first based on shiny or based on this is the cool thing that people are doing now, you will shape your requirements around the tool. And we know how that goes. No, it doesn't get well. Yeah, I, I remember a pro, uh, project I was involved in where a customer decided basically the technology, uh, but the requirement was there. So splitting a monolith in, into microservices. And uh, those microservices should run, run in Docker with uh, Java backend and uh, Node.js frontend. So quite simple, quite common approach. But then... Uh, when it, when it came to to the cloud provider, we were thinking about AWS or, or GCP back, day, back in the days. And uh, the customer was again saying, okay, I, I'm against AWS. Take GCP. Okay, let's go into the GCP. Um, let's uh, deploy it in, in GCP's uh, Kubernetes engine. Mm, I don't like it. And by the end... Uh, <laughs> By the end, uh, uh, we, we, we ended up in VMs governed, uh, each one starting one Docker container and having a service discovery via HashiCorp's console and sec- secret managed via vault. So basically, we reinvented the wheel. We created an own Docker uh, orchestration with service discovery, uh, despite you know having the solutions already there and being tested and, and polished already which brought us a lot of childhood problems, of course. Uh, but we were fast. We, we managed to go in production in two months. We worked over 12, 14 hours a day, and we had a success. Even the, 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 the customer uh, managed to go through a peak of a Black Friday. It was a retail company. But maybe if we had the discussions in the beginning more, more effective between the customer and the consult- consulting company, and maybe rounding the edges and uh, waiting this liking against technology or the other way, we could have been more efficient, 
especially in the long run. And uh, we could uh, save uh, a lot of money into changing the existing infrastructure later on. And, uh, of course, uh, the level of stress. I mean, so many people burned out after that project. So after one year, everybody left one after another. Not, 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 not at once, but anyway. So it's, <laughs> it's a tough thing. And uh, it's really, uh, it's, it's always like you think, uh, if I could do not, uh, if I could done it differently, what would I do? But uh, if you start something, really, you, you need to really think hard and, and, and maybe abs abstract from your likings or dislikings in that sense. It depends on the use case. But I think in that kind of case, it's easy to say, but difficult to do when some customer or CTO or whoever says, I don't like that technology. What is it you don't like about it? What is it that concerns you there? What problems do you foresee happening? And often they probably can't articulate anything. They just know that, I don't know, it just feels wrong. <laughs> but how to kind of get out what really is resistance and what are they, what are they worried about with this particular technology or solution or idea? And is that really a problem that this amount of cost is justified by? But figuring that out, getting the details out, being able to say that, well, this is how much it's going to cost to do it differently. Are you sure it bothers you that much is a very difficult thing to do. But that academically, at least, is the right answer. But in real life, very difficult to do. Yeah, I always say that every single objection hides a requirement, right? So if somebody objects to it, it's normally because there's a hidden requirement that has not been discovered yet, that uh, it's important digging into it and understanding exactly the reasoning, as you said. I love that phrase, the way you said that, and I'm going to absolutely steal it. Every objection hides a requirement. That's perfect. Yeah, I don't know why, but it happens that a lot of people in IT like Star Trek. And uh, considering your example, Elgen, maybe some people haven't really comprehended the definition of boldly go where no one has gone before. It it was not originally said in the technology selection phase of an IT project. Rather stick to what has proven to work before. Maybe we could uh, look a little further ahead and uh, move to the second subject. But is there anything else you wanted to say about cloud waste before we go to the zero trust? I think you said it again that it's always going to be there in one degree. And Mark, you said that there's a difference between overhead and uh, cloud waste. But let's just do, do a quick conclusion. Is is cloud waste inevitable or is there a way around it? I would personally say cloud waste is, I would say it's not inevitable. There's ways to go around it. Uh, for me, cloud waste is a necessity of the business. But um, as the same as, let's say, technical debt, right? As as you advance, you accrue technical debt, uh, also you accrue cloud waste. Uh, but at some point, you need to pay that back. You need to make sure that you keep it as low as possible. So for me, cloud waste then transforms from something that it generates extra financial burden on you to something that is an insurance, right? And I always say that 5% extra compute insurance, just in case you get the peak traffic and you cannot react in five minutes. Uh, and, and that's all right. That's healthy. It becomes unhealthy when you're talking about 30, 40, 60% wasted. That's where you're really throwing money away. Cloud waste is like dust. You can't get rid of that. Dust is everywhere. 
but you need to wipe it often enough then you have a clean surfaces and everybody is happy but if you don't clean them you will have allergies you will have uh, dust becoming like earth crust thick and so on and so forth so you, you need to have an eye on it but it's a good indicator like you take a white glove and check am i clean in in, in terms of uh, cost or uh, resource management so it will be there like dust <laughs> but you, you you have to turn it to your advantage and uh, use it as an indicator for, for for instance super moving on to zero trust so switching gears and uh, and i remember that andy this was a topic a little closer to your heart and eugen you were more focused on cloud west but all the same we're going to have give hard time for mark um zero trust and again when when i look at the verbatim from hashicorp is is predicated on securing everything based on trusted identities machine authentication authorization machine to machine access human authentication authorization and human to machine access being the four fundamental categories for identity driven controls and zero trust security so is there some particular reason why we are talking about this now i'm thinking back 20 years and uh, ticket granting tickets and multi-factor authentication and uh, all kinds of things like i remember them from back in time when i was a practitioner so why now i think it's probably a much bigger issue now for a couple of reasons the first one that comes to mind is of course we have a global pandemic going on and everybody's working from home and you know overnight every company went remote and you can't trust uh you that you're employees are in the same network all the time so you have to change the way you're kind of securing things and that didn't really change anything but made it more apparent for everybody that hey we have this issue and then the the other big thing that i see contributing to this is the number of SaaS services is just exploding i remember you know 20 25 years ago something it was really a big big discussion if we can take an external interface and now i was just talking with a customer and they said yeah we have uh we have these microservices in in house and then we have these services which are coming from another team and we have this block over here those are all external and it was like the dozens of 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 external interfaces so just the sheer number of of different connections which need to be made for modern solutions and the way they're kind of distributed in a very good way and it's really great for microservices and cloud waste and whatnot but it means that you need to look at the things much differently from a security and authentication and trust point of view yeah and i completely agree uh with andy and i would like to say that even if that's uh from the hashicorp website i like another definition of zero trust better uh, which is what i normally use which is uh, trust nothing authenticate everything and assume breach which is i would say from the devsecops uh, uh, movement that's the normal the normal one we use for that and i would say it's not anything new uh, but it's just that as his hand means we've always been lazy and for me one thing that i use as a comparison is a difference between living in a very small town where you grow up everybody knows who your parents are everybody knows who you are and you try to go buy a beer when you're 14 years old right the guy at the shop goes like oh no don't 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 do that john we know you and i'm going to tell your parents about this by the way where if you go to a big city right the shop uh, the shopkeeper doesn't know you at all doesn't know who you are so 
he needs something from a trusted authority, in the case the government, to show that you have the right age to be able to buy it, that beer. And to be honest, the shopkeeper in the small town should have done the same, like show me an ID, right? But I said, he got lazy because he knew already who that person was. And, and we did the same in a way. We had full control of the data center of the machines. Oh yeah, I already know that machine. Uh, there's nothing to check because it's fine, right? When it really wasn't fine, but we just assumed that it was. Yeah, I was uh, in a in a meeting with a customer just a few days ago, and this uh, gentleman I was speaking with was not a native English speaker, and he said, "Yes, we have no trust in our organization. We do everything with no trust." And I said, "So you don't trust anything?" Kind of jokingly, and he said, "Oh yeah, yeah. I mean zero trust, but actually." No, we do have no trust because we want to make sure we know with a K, no, what we're trusting. And I thought that was kind of like interesting, interesting perspective that came out of, of his uh, missing up the uh, no trust and zero trust. Yeah. So now we already have almost like two definitions of zero trust on the table. And I'm pretty sure that all heated topics, there are dime a dozen definitions. But are there some main guidelines that despite the definition that you would use, you would still say you are practicing zero trust? If you look at zero trust from the consequences, which is what we're trying to avoid, right? The consequences perspective, it's all about blast radius. It's all about if something happens here, how much of this will get me in trouble? How many systems will be affected? How far away can the attacker get? Right. So uh, in the sense, all these definitions of zero trust for me, it's all about minimizing that blast radius, minimizing the amount of damage that anybody can do. And and that's why uh, I would say assume breach, right? Assume that you've already been breached. Assume there's already someone there that is trying to do something that is not good for you. How long can you stop them? How far can they get? Hmm. Andy. Yeah, I was just thinking that uh, quite often in the in the spy movies, the the handsome guy in the tuxedo comes into the front door and gets through the lobby and through security, and after that, nobody challenges him any anymore because they assume he must belong there, and that's the same way we kind of treat our computer networks quite often. That yeah, you're you're in the trusted land, you must be fine, but instead of that model, if we verify based on every connection and every kind of transaction instead of just here's the IP yeah it sounds okay that's the, that's the kind of thinking that we need to do that every every bit of uh every request that comes in should i be trusting this or not and of course you don't need to be verifying every single tcp packet but every every transaction or you know yeah, the, before there was a term uh, defense in depth and i think it sort of tries to say the same thing, that don't only trust the perimeter. I think we have already discussed about how to, or how can zero trust make computing more secure, but if there's anything else you want to say about that, let's get the last words. But I'm interested in what are then the different ways for, let's say, architects and uh, companies who build software, like how do they go about practicing this in real life? Uh, that's a very good question for me. And this goes, again, back to the DevSecOps movement, which I'm part of that community. It's all about shift-left security. And I know that has been repeated a lot uh, with Zero Trust, but shift-left security is something that needs to be intentional. It needs to be intentional and it needs to have a, it needs to have a purpose. The, um, 
and of course that means for me that any single application any single architecture you need to have the security department sitting there with you from the beginning if you start adding security once the application has been designed or once the architecture has been designed it will be a patch on top of something but you need to create that defensive architecture that defensive application architecture as well to make sure that it's as secure as it can be because I said otherwise it would be like I said, installing a glass door and say, oh yeah, actually anybody can break this glass door. So let's add a small barrier afterwards. I'm sure nobody will jump that. And I think the, at least in my view, the top two things that, that people should do to move towards zero trust is number one, don't trust connections based on the network, but really authenticate the connections. And number two, no tokens or no uh, accesses should ever be like defined anywhere. But instead, the application should fetch a token or fetch a authorization from somewhere else and update that. They should be short-lived and always fetched. So when you go to the source code, even if things are proper and you, you don't commit, you know, API tokens into GitHub, but in your local source code, you shouldn't see any tokens there either. But your application should start up talk to some secrets manager, get a short-lived token from then, and then continue on with, with establishing the connection. And if we can make those two changes, I think a lot of the, of the security problems start going away. It doesn't solve everything, but those are, in my view, the two biggest changes that give us the biggest benefit in the short term. But uh, if we come back to the beginning of the discussion about zero trust, uh, as, as Lapa said, it's nothing new. Like 20 years ago, it was the same. Same security concerns, same security measures to be taken. And yeah, the world, it, it, it grew rapidly. Social networks, people saving a lot um, of data in the cloud, it can leak easily. And external uh, links, as, as, as uh, Andy said. Like you have 12 or dozens uh, of, of external um, production uh related services running how do you rotate the the authentication tokens towards them what happens if somebody leaks it because he saves his notepad somewhere or push it to a gist right so the the the, the uh, considerations are the same the blast radius became bigger right now because of the speed of the uh, uh, communication of the social network of people, not only social networks, but you know what I mean. So yeah, the impact became much more uh, serious. And uh, we have to be more serious in implementing the security measures to be taken. But they are all the same, like 20 years ago, like 40 years ago. Yeah. And 25 years ago, I had to update my password every year. Then I had to update it every few months. Then I need to update it more often. But now applications are doing things so quickly, you should update that token like how many minutes. So as things are speeding up, we need to speed up our kind of security renewal process and our security auditing process and all those things as well. They need to follow the same speed, breakneck speed of growth that everything else is following. Yeah, and it's the same reason as DevOps and as automation, as Agile. It's all about how do you cope at speed, right? Because you cannot make things slower again. So you need to make sure that you get it right. Yeah, maybe the last question, what has been the good sort of 
organizational practices for zero trust to you already talked about shift left which is probably one good one but anything else that comes to your mind from an organizational culture perspective yeah i would say that one thing that people always forget is to make sure that they use two ways of authentication for those very critical points right like you the beginning of your root of trust uh, the uh, the administration of your of your whole infrastructure this kind of stuff right it's something you know plus something you have always and if you if you do either of those only then you are opening yourself up um and so in that sense i think that's a good practice to follow and to enforce all across wonderful excellent summary thank you again mark for joining this was a great conversation on two topics uh, we left the synthesis hanging and uh, maybe we will leave it hanging between the cloud waste and uh, zero trust i also thank you andy for joining and uh, elgen for joining for this uh, conversation thank you thanks thanks thank you for listening as usual we have enclosed the links to the social media profiles of our guests to the show notes please take a look you can also find links to the literature referred in the podcast on the show notes alongside other interesting educational content. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Finally, before we sign off, I would like to invite you personally to the DevOps conference happening online on March 8th and 9th. The participation is free of charge for attendees. You can find the link to the registration page from where else than in the show notes. Now, let's give our guests an opportunity to introduce themselves. I say now, take care of yourselves and see you in the DevOps conference. My name is Eugen Kaparulin. I am uh, in the IT business for over 20 years. About 15 years, I was a C++ developer, mostly working with uh, development of remote access solutions. And uh, lately, I think since 2016 or so on, I moved into the DevOps and CloudOps uh, area where my background helps quite much, especially argumenting with the developer teams why the infrastructure is, has to be designed that way. I was working uh, mostly with GCP and uh, some AWS and currently currently working as a senior consultant for diverse customers. I don't know if I need to say whether I use Hashicorp products or not, but I have. <laughs> I'm Mark Loe. I'm the manager for the Partner Solutions Engineering team at Hashicorp for EMEA. I have 25 years of experience in the industry, very passionate about DevOps and about DevSecOps as well. I do organize London DevOps, which is one of the biggest uh, meetups in the world. And also I organize DevSecOps days in the UK. So both are very close to my heart. Besides all of that, I said, I really like HashiCorp products. I've been a practitioner of HashiCorp for the last six, seven, eight years. And every new product that they've released, every new product that I've consumed or tried to break at least. Hi, I'm Andy Elred. I started my career in as an electronic warfare specialist in the U.S. Navy, working on nuclear-powered fast-attack submarines, which is something always kind of unique and gets people's attention. After that, I moved into telecoms and worked in telecoms mostly, or I started on the radio side, but then shifted more to the IT side of telecom companies and worked there for, for quite a number of years. And uh, then recently, I've moved into the consultancy space and working as a consultant for DevOps and cloud projects. 